In the beginning, there was no frontier. There was only a place by the sea where a long sandy river flung its tail eastwards towards the centre of a silent continent. In the west, the river's tongue split in two, licking the salty lip of an indifferent ocean that sometimes slapped, sometimes caressed the mangrove-littered shores and the empty beaches of the shimmering land. Each day, the ocean tide slid slowly, quietly in and out of the river's moist throat. Sawfish, stingrays and flathead basked in the warm, shallow water left behind. On hot summer afternoons, seagulls and pelicans hung in the eddy of salty sou'westers that blustered in across the waves. The wind brought with it cooler air that bent the gum trees on the riverbanks. Sometimes cyclones tore into the northwestern reaches of the continent. When they had spent their fury, they moved dark and sullen towards the inland where they dropped rain on the river's eastern tributaries. Then a great stream of water would race brown, blind and mute towards the land's end, spewing into the ocean, staining its waves and littering the beaches with logs and branches and dead animals. A dark people lived there. Those people were owned by that land. It was their place, their birthright. They left no scar on that country's skin, raised no fences, moved silently through its silence. They called the place by the ocean Kuin Wardo, the neck of the river, and along its length they knew every secret, every sacred place, and the names of everything in it. Once, thousands of years before there was a northern frontier, there was only a river, a sea, a sky, and a place that owned a people. Welcome to the Good Reading Magazine podcast. Good Reading is a monthly magazine dedicated to books and reading and aims to help readers discover their next favourite book. You can find out more about the books discussed on today's podcast at goodreadingmagazine.com.au. Hello and welcome back to the Good Reading Podcast. I'm Heather Lewis and today we're joined by David Price talking about his new book, Dark Tales from the Long River, a collection of tales of murder, dispossession, violence and misadventure that took place in the Gascoigne region of Western Australia during the 33-year tenure of Magistrate C.D.V. Foss, which ended in 1915. David, thanks so much for joining us today. No, that's my pleasure, Heather. So what inspired you to write about justice in Australia's northwest frontier and specifically the Gascoigne region and Magistrate Foss? Well, it, it didn't really come out of any kind of inspiration to write a book at all. I was doing, I grew up in the town of Carnarvon, which is about 900 kilometres north of Perth. Uh, and when I was doing some family history about five years ago, I came across a story of a Chinese man um, called Ah Hook who in 1904 went on a rampage and killed four people. And that, re that reminded me that when I'd been a boy, I'd seen two gravestones in the Asian section of the Carnarvon Cemetery, which had two people murdered on the same night. And it had always intrigued me as a child, um, but I'd never known the story behind it. So I thought, well, I'll write that story down because Carnarvon people will probably enjoy it. And then I thought, well, why don't I find more stories about Carnarvon and I'll put them onto a blog and Carnarvon people can see a little bit of their history. But as I started to delve into story after story, it became clear to me that there was a bigger story that, that lay behind it. And that was just exactly how crime and punishment played out 
at the turn of the 19th and 20th centuries. Well, where did the focus on Magistrate Foss come from and also what can you tell us about him and his role in the region? So as I delved into the, um, that, that period of history, it became clear to me that many, if not most of the uh, legal cases came before the local magistrate uh, and his name was Charles Denroche Vaughan Foss and he was the first magistrate appointed to Carnarvon in 1882. I think, it's, I think it's fair to say that he was appointed at a time of great unrest in the Gascoigne Murchison, largely attached to two things. One was um, the Aboriginal population uh, and the stealing of uh, animals and stores from the settlers and the occasional murder, uh, mainly of drovers and teamsters, almost invariably in relation to the exploitation of Aboriginal women. So there was definitely a sense amongst white settlers uh, that, in fact, the that law was required. The second one was that there was a great fear at the time that the Chinese in particular would gain a foothold in Australia, an economic foothold. And in the, in the worst nightmares of the colonists, the Aboriginal people and Chinese people would somehow join together and outnumber the settlers. So yeah. Foss, Foss was really sent up to, um, to bring a legal sword to bear on those two problems. I wanted to ask about your process of research for the book because you've managed to get a remarkable level of detail both in describing the variety of crimes committed but also the trial process that occurred afterwards. What was your research like? So the the stories themselves I found through Trove. So that was my starting point. Hmm. Um, By doing a simple word search, for example, Carnarvon, Gascoigne, uh, Aboriginal people, Chinese, etc. Um, any number of news stories would appear, and that that tended to be my starting point. Papers of the time did record many of the details of the court cases, but of course, once I knew when when these things had happened, I had um, access to court records, uh, Hansard um, diaries, etc. But the starting point was always what was making the news in that time. And the other striking thing of the book is that the tone is quite impartial and you kind of let the historical facts and the people involved stand up for themselves. Why did you choose to write in that way? Yeah, that was that was very purposeful actually. One of the so for many years I was a teacher and one of the things I learned from being a teacher was that the very worst way you can bring people to learn anything is by lecturing to them. So I thought the best way this story can be told is simply through the stories and allow people to make their own judgments. I thought that if anyone suspected or thought that I, in fact, was trying to tell them something that perhaps they didn't really want to be told, um, they would just turn away from it. So the stories have been designed to be as inherently interesting to the to the average reader as possible, and any learnings that are bigger than the stories, I've allowed them to make those judgments themselves. Hmm. But I think the judgments for any average person are are fairly easy to easy to make. Yeah, definitely. Well, from your perspective, I'm curious how life on the northwestern frontier of Australia compared to other frontier areas of Australia during this time. Ah, I think that's a really good question. Um, my, look, I, I would say they were a microcosm of exactly what happened across the entirety of, of Australia. Mm. It was just that because the uh, northwest of Western Australia was so remote, it came to these things later than the rest. 
Yeah. But they certainly built on the experience of the eastern states, for example, where it was learned very early in the piece that the law could be used to actually actually subjugate the Indigenous people of Australia and to rid yourself of the Chinese in particular. Really, they, they were the same lessons. They were just a little bit later. And you mentioned um, Asian migrants in the region as well. And aside from covering the treatment of Aboriginal people during this time, the book also has quite a few stories concerning Asian migrants, a lot of them which were quite surprising and things that were not really taught about this time in history. I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about what life was like for Asian migrants in the Gascoigne region at this time. So the, the Chinese, and once again, the experience of the Chinese was in Carnarvon and the Gascoigne was similar to the rest of Australia. Western Australia in particular, though, had a, had a struggling economy and a struggling population. So mm. it found it a great difficulty um, in having enough people to do the work that needed to be done. So very reluctantly, Asian migration was introduced, but it was done in such a way that the people who came from Asia, particularly China, but also the Philippines and other places, um, were restricted to only a very narrow field of, of enterprise, normally laundries, market gardens, etc. On top of that, they very, very strongly, um, um, they put huge impediments in, way, in the way of, of uh, Asian women coming to Australia. So you had these, these uh, communities of largely Asian men uh, living in confined spaces and very economically um, constrained and then put into very remote places um, like Carnarvon would have been at that time. Um, on the jetty at Carnarvon, they used, the police used to set up um, traps because the Chinese would often uh, import opium from the ships um, as one of their leisure time activities, which today sounds like maybe that was a um, a legitimate thing to do is to um, arrest Chinese people importing uh, opium until you realise that it was really just for their own use. And even more interestingly, Australians, white Australians, were some of the greatest opiate users in the world, except the difference was that it was, of course, in their medicines rather than taken in a pure form. So Chinese people had a very tough time. Just to give you an indication there, Heather, in the just over the 100 years of since the uh, colonisation of, of uh, the Swan River and uh, the last hanging in the 1960s, Western Australia formally hanged 154 people. Of the 154 people that were hanged, 40% were Aboriginal and 15% were Asian. In other words, Asians and Aboriginal people, even though they formed by large, to, to a large extent, the smallest part of the population, mm. actually represented 55% of everyone ever hanged in the, in the state. So just that alone tells you a little bit about, I mean, if that was the top of the iceberg, you can imagine what it looked like under, underneath it. Well, an interesting thing about the book is that you actually have a family connection to one of the stories covered, that of the legendary pearl found in Broome in 1905. What can you tell us about that story and your connection to it? Yeah, it's a very, um, it's a very famous story over here. I don't know if it's famous anywhere else. It's a true story of a pearl that was found in 1905 and on my great-grandfather's uh, lugger. He was, part, he was the co-owner of a lugger in Broome. The pearl was definitely found. It was definitely stolen. It was definitely found again before the boat arrived on the shore. 
and then it disappeared again and no signing no sighting of the pearl was ever made again a guy called um, ian idris very famous um, australian writer got hold of the story uh, in the mid 20th century and turned it into quite a yarn and it's a lot a lot of the truth behind the pearl has now got muddied by lots of you know, legend however what we can what we definitely know is that it was found there were um, there was a murder of a pearl dealer in relation to that pearl in 1905, a man called Lieblin. Um, he was lured onto a boat um, to buy the pearl um, and murdered. The three men responsible were then hanged in Fremantle Jail. In the meantime, my, my great-grandfather and his new Scottish wife arrived in town. And of course, my great-grandmother was appalled at this, this story and what was going on. And in effect, asked her husband to get rid of the the lugger, and they moved down to Carnarvon in 1907. They set up a small shop, and after about three months, and my grandmother then was just about seven or eight months old, um, he went down to the Carnarvon jetty to uh, get some supplies off a ship and was never seen again. All the news reports of the time never mention him dying. They only ever refer to a strange disappearance. Uh, the boat was searched the boat that was at the jetty at the time was searched when it arrived in Geraldton. It was searched again when it arrived in Fremantle. No sign of him was found. Uh, they dragged the shoreline for three weeks, hoping that a body might wash up, but no body ever turned up. The, the mystery remains. What was the ending of my great-grandfather and did it, in fact, have something to do with the Pablo Pearl? I don't think we're ever going to know. Um, but, of course, the other side of that story is my great-grandmother was now in Carnarvon in this isolated community with a little baby and went on to um, become a very successful, independent, um, single mother and a business person. So quite a pioneer in her own right. Is there a story in Dark Tales that is, I guess, your favourite? The one that always um, intrigued me because I didn't know about it at all was that one of... Um, Western Australia's first known serial killers had his mm. beginnings in Carnarvon, and that that surprised me that I'd never heard that story before. A guy, quite nasty little man called Charlie Spargo, um, who committed at least three murders, maybe four, and at least one attempted murder before he was caught. Um, but I think the favourite story, also the most tragic story, is the story of Topsy, the, oh, little yes. Aboriginal, yeah, the little Aboriginal toddler who was shot to death by a white man in front of her parents and another witness. And yet no one was ever, even though it went to trial in Perth, no one was ever found guilty of the murder or anything related to it. And um, Topsy's parents had to go back into the, into the bush after that trial, which you can imagine must have been a bizarre circumstance for them to be taken all the way to Perth to witness this arcane court case in front of judges and lawyers, only to be told that no one was responsible for the death of their daughter and then to be sent back home again. So that's always seemed to me to be the saddest story, but also the one that tells us so much about mm. that time. Yeah. Well, with that in mind, for my last question, I wanted to ask what you think we can learn today by looking at crime and punishment in Australia's frontier days? I hope that anyone who reads, for example, the story of Topsy um, or the story you may remember in the book, uh, Heather, the story of um, Thackabiddy, 
who mm. was found near some sheep, shot in the neck, forced to walk behind a horse, tied to a horse for 100 kilometres, shot in the foot, dragged through the, um, through the bush for 100 metres from behind the horse, tied to a tree and left to die. And once again, when it went to court, the jury took 10 minutes to decide that no one was responsible for his death. Yeah. Even though they're little stories in themselves, that is, they only involve one little toddler or one Aboriginal man, anyone reading the story, I think, becomes empathetic for the people involved um, and the families involved. And I think and I hope that from that empathy grows a sense of understanding of the fuller history of Aboriginal people and uh, Asian people in Australia, and from that empathy, understanding for how we are today, if you like, and mm. a way of sort of, I hope, kind of maturing in our understanding of ourselves as a country. That would be the best outcome. But if they just enjoy the stories, that's okay as well. <laughs> yeah. Well, David, thank you so much for joining us today. No, my pleasure, Heather. Thanks very much for having me. Subscribe to Good Reading Print and Online Magazine at goodreadingmagazine.com.au.